I want to begin uh, with Isaiah 9. Uh, I, I will mostly talk about Matthew today, but uh, Isaiah 9 kind of um, gets us uh, on the solid footing that I want to start with. Uh, we're talking about peace today and in actually uh, next week and, and maybe all the, the whole Advent season, frankly. Uh, and uh, Isaiah 9 is a... Uh, a prophecy that's often read uh, in the uh, Christmas time and at the Advent season. And so we're reading it this morning, uh, and it, in it is a, a classic line about the Prince of Peace. And, uh, well, what you need to know is that the backdrop of this whole passage is anything but peace, right? The backdrop of this passage is chaos, is a world that is being turned upside down. Uh, it is about Israel losing itself. Uh, it's Israel losing its own power. And it's about other kingdoms coming in and destroying what once was. And people being at their wit's end. And not knowing quite what to do. And hoping for something. It's definitely about hope. With that backdrop, let's read together, starting in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, and it starts right out of the bat with the backdrop. Anguish is, is the backdrop to it all, right? Anguish. But there will be some future point, this, this hope, there will be no gloom. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then he really gets into it at this point. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And I don't know about you, but I sure know darkness and I know a great light, and I know when I need the one, the great light, because I've been living in some kind of darkness at some point in my life. And he goes on, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And here we're going to get some war imagery. And you might even think of uh, a war in your own memory, perhaps. Some of you have seen this firsthand. Or maybe you've seen it in film, uh, or whatever it might be. We know the chaos of what war brings. And this desire on the other side, among Christians at least, should be peace. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. And here I, I, I think he's imagining this uh, former battle that once happened in Midian where victory was achieved and the, the rod of the oppressor was broken. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood 
will be burned as fuel for the fire. All of those former things that brought awful, terrible tragedy and hurt and pain and, as he says, anguish, they will all be rolled up and burned as fuel for the fire. And then he really gets into it, and he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And there's hope. Hope in, of all things, a child. That someday a child will be born. And that this child will take us out of the warring nature that is humanity, the violence, the blood, even the battles of Midian, and will bring us into something else. Because the government shall be laid upon his shoulder, and this person's name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The powerful words, the hopeful words. Of course, we know where all of this is going, right? We, we know the Christmas story. We know the story of Jesus. We know the story of, of, of the cross and of the resurrection and the ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We all know where this story is heading. They certainly maybe didn't in quite the same way that we do. I don't know that Isaiah himself knew where this story was going. But his job was to speak the word of the Lord. And it was a word of hope. A word of moving away from the violence of the world toward peace. Toward peace. When Isaiah prophesies that a prince of peace is coming into the world, it is important that we remember that the prince of peace does not inherit this peace. He must create it. He does not receive a kingdom that is in perfect order. He must reorder a broken kingdom. He is not born into a peaceful kingdom. He is born into a kingdom in pieces. And he makes it his job to take the shattered lives and the shattered hopes of the people of his kingdom and to pull them together into wholeness and unity. He is the Prince of Peace because of what he gives to the world, not because of what he has given. I think we see this very clearly in Matthew 1. Not just in the passage we read, by the way, but as the passage unfolds uh, on into chapter 2. The whole story of Jesus' birth, really, is filled with anything but peace. 
I was actually thinking about it as I was sitting, uh, preparing myself to come up here, and I don't know that the word peace even shows up in the book of Matthew in the first two chapters. If it does, it's probably in passing. And instead, what we really get in those first two chapters of Matthew, well, is more like chaos. And I think as we approach Christmas ourselves, we might be tempted to believe that Christ's birth took place in a perfectly preserved state of peace, because that's what we all hope Christmas will look like for us. And despite Jesus being born among farm animals, we still imagine that it was a silent night, a holy night, and that all was calm and all was bright and that he was asleep in heavenly peace. I just had a two-year-old in my house, and it was anything but all of those. (laughs) It's a fiction of our imagination. It's frankly as fictional a portrait as the curated portrait of a life that your best friend has on her social media page. From the outside, it looks like she's living her best life now with vacations, family photos where everybody seems to be getting along, and Christmas decorations up before Thanksgiving's over. But you know the struggles of your friend, and you know what's really going on behind all of those things. The chaos surrounding Jesus' birth is, in many ways, unspeakable. Every last person near to him was affected by the chaos. It seemed to follow him wherever he went. Jesus was born not into a world of peace. If he was going to embody the Prince of Peace promised in Isaiah chapter 9, he had a lot of work to do. As I said, I'm, I'm going to spend most of my sermon in Matthew chapter 1, but the, the verses that follow and, and the paragraphs and the passages that follow include the following. After those magi come to visit him, Herod, well, Herod seeks to kill Jesus, and this prompts Jesus' family to flee to Egypt at which point they become refugees in a land that they don't know about, and they have to hide there for fear of their own lives. And then meanwhile, back in Bethlehem, Herod does the unthinkable, and he orders the slaughter of everyone two years old and younger to be killed. And then it's only once Herod has finally died that Jesus' family believes it's safe to return, but even then they're afraid that Herod's son, who's now in charge, is going to do something similar, and so they go up north to Nazareth. That's the beginning of Jesus' life. I don't know how your life is going this morning, but I don't think it's quite that. If Jesus was going to be the Prince of Peace, indeed, he had a lot of work to do. Let's take a closer look at Matthew chapter 1, however. If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And uh, I think what we find there is a little more unrest. It goes like this. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. We all know how this works, and uh, surely this was not just an awkward situation. Do you know what happens to women in ancient Judea who get pregnant out of wedlock? Do you know what happens? Or have you read the story in in John 8, where there's a woman caught in adultery, and they are going to stone her to death, right? This isn't just a shame issue. This is a, a matter of life and death for Mary. Her life is at risk at this point. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And and let me just stop there for a second. Uh, If you know your Bible well, and specifically if you know your angels in your Bible well, angels often come to humans and they, they always start with, do not fear. That's like common, a common trope that angels have to say to humans. They, they say, do not be afraid. But there's an irony going on in this passage. You see, normally the person is afraid of the angel And so the angel must say to this person, hey, it's okay, everything's going to be all right, I'm safe, do not be afraid. But that's not what the angel says to Joseph. The angel who comes to Joseph assures him of something else. The angel says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Joseph's fear is not of the angel. He has bigger problems. But the angel assures him that despite the chaos of the situation he finds himself in, everything is under control, believe it or not. Everything is under control. God's plan is being carried out amidst the chaos. And so the angel says to Joseph, again reading from scripture, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, there is uh, something you should know about the name Jesus, and it's something I've said before, but some of you have not heard it, and it's okay to repeat things because uh, I understand that you don't remember all of the things I say. I don't remember all of the things I say either. (laughs) What you need to know about Jesus' name is that it has been mistranslated for 2,000 years. I've heard, did, did, did you know this? 
His name, I mean, maybe that is saying it in a way that is uh, perhaps overselling it, but I don't think so. There is another word out there in the English universe for Jesus, which is the word in Greek that we find there. Anybody? Joshua, right? Joshua. I, I think this is of uh, incredible importance. We could have, for 2,000 years, been calling him Joshua, and maybe should have, because I think something gets missed when we do not link these two things together. I actually think a lot of things get missed. In Hebrews 4, the, the writer of Hebrews uses the name Joshua and it appears the exact same spelling as Jesus, Jesus, there it is. The book of Acts, Luke writes Acts, and, and there we find again the name of Jesus, except this time we know he's talking about Joshua, same spelling. The story of Joshua, and really kind of the, the larger narrative around this character and what he represents in the Old Testament, I think is critical in understanding also what Jesus is doing. The uh, person of Joshua, he completes Moses' mission. The person of Joshua in the Old Testament completes Moses' mission. Do you remember this? So Moses uh, wanders in the wilderness for those 40 years. I feel terrible for Moses. And then he's on the cusp of going into the promised land, but God does not allow him to. And it's, it's Joshua. Joshua must take the people of Israel into the promised land. And, and he completes this mission that Moses had been on for his whole life. In the Old Testament, if there is one figure that is the most critical person or, or figure or character in, in all of the Old Testament, it is without a doubt Moses. And this is because Moses establishes that covenant with God. This is God's redemption plan. God establishes a covenant through Moses, maybe I should say it, with Israel. The most important figure of the New Testament, not surprisingly, it's Jesus, right? Because Jesus does what? Jesus also establishes a new covenant. Thus, we get the Old Testament or Old Covenant, and we get the New Testament and the New Covenant. You're learning all kinds of things this morning. And what happens in this? Well, the person of Jesus or Joshua fulfills what gets started in that Old Testament, in that person of Moses and, and the people of Israel. And so, in the same way that Joshua fulfills the mission of Moses, so also, really, Jesus fulfills what Moses is doing. That's the exact language that the book of Hebrews uses over and over and over again for what Jesus is doing and did. He fulfilled Moses' mission, or he fulfills what happens in the Old Testament. There's a little more, though. The goal in uh, the Old Testament, as, as Moses is uh, heading toward the Promised Land, is to get to that Promised Land, and it's Joshua who gets them there, right? So after the people wander through the desert, 
for an inordinate amount of time, it's Joshua who leads the people of God into the promised land. Jesus, I can say those same exact words, after people wander through the desert for an inordinate amount of time, it is Jesus who leads the people of God into the promised land. Jesus has the same mission. The people who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. Both of their names, because they share a name, uh, mean God saves. This is what their names mean. Joshua, Jesus, God saves, right? And so as Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land, He begins to fight battles, and it is Joshua who is saving or delivering, or really better yet, it is God who is saving or delivering the people of Israel from the enemies that are all about them. This might be the most important reality that we find in the book of Joshua, that it is not the people of Israel who are winning these battles. It is God, right? It is God who is fighting these battles for them. And so we sing the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? But it's really God fought the battle of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. Thus the the trumpets that surround, like trumpets aren't supposed to make walls fall down. But when God is on your side, this is what we find. Well, Jesus... What is Jesus doing? Well, he's reenacting this same story. And it is through Jesus that indeed God saves. The angel says as much to Joseph on that fateful night where he had to reassure Joseph, don't be afraid. The angel says to him, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people. Only this time around, when we meet a guy named God Saves, it is actually God incarnate, God in human flesh, who has come to save us. And this is a mystery too wonderful to explain. But the angel doesn't just say that Jesus will save his people. The angel says that, the, that Jesus will save his people from their sins. That, that's the whole of it. He will save his people from their sins. And much more, again, I said it last week and I'll say it again this week, needs to be said about this word sin. Maybe you've heard it said before, and it's right, In both Greek and Hebrew, the word actually means to miss the mark. It's like an archer who's aiming for that target, only he or she misses to one side or the other, right? This is the imagery that stands behind the word sin, to miss the mark. But I think it's important that we understand what the target is. What is the target that we're aiming at that has been missed? I think too often, we actually think in Old Testament terms. 
We think in Old Covenant terms. We think in law terms. We think of that list of 613 sins that you could commit in the first five books of the Bible, and we say to ourselves, well, when I lie and I I murder and I steal and I commit adultery, then I sin. And you're not wrong. You're not. It's just there's, there's more. There's, well, the New Testament more. I mentioned last week, even Paul actually comes up with lists like these, where he, where he has the lists of, these are the things you shouldn't do, right? And then here's the things you should do. But there is something underneath. I actually think those lists of sins, is this just a tip of the iceberg kind of sticking out, and it reminds us that there's something underneath the water that needs to be dealt with. There's something much bigger, a, a problem that is under there that won't go away even if you, you cut that little uh, iceberg off the top of it all, right? There's more going on. The mark coming back to this, that gets missed is not just those sins that we can name. The mark that we are missing and what Jesus has come to save us from is the same thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they break that one command that they're given, don't eat from that tree, right? And they break that one command, and then here's the key, what do they do next? Well, now they are ushered out of the garden. More importantly, they are ushered out of God's presence. And to the east of Eden, they walk. And there it is. That bigger thing that's underneath the iceberg is the very presence of God himself. We have walked away from God. And so Jesus saves us from our very selves. He offers us a way back to the presence of God. He is the Prince of Peace who opens up the gates of Eden once more and bids us to come in and enjoy the rest that is found there. But just like with his birth, at least for the time we have left on this earth, the peace is not found by squashing all the chaos that's around us. It is found in spite of it. And so I don't know your specific brand of chaos this morning that you will encounter today and this week and over the next month. I can't give you a therapeutic answer to your specific woes. Perhaps you've got family problems, spouse problems. Perhaps you've lost a loved one and have a hole that won't heal. Maybe the chaos is that your life is simply too busy and you can't find time for the smallest of things. I do know that C.S. Lewis is right about this. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. 
I'll read that again. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is simply not there. There is no such thing, is what he says. And so whatever is going on in your life, and I do not doubt that it can be difficult and it can be very serious. But to all of these things, the Prince of Peace comes and offers us his peace, not in a way that will always take away the chaos, but in a way that gives us strength and peace through it, a peace that certainly passes understanding. And so this morning, I ask you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let us pray together. Oh God, we come this morning. We come, many of us, with a backpack full of baggage that is weighing us down. Some of us come this morning with hearts full, not of your love, but perhaps of bitterness. Hearts full of revenge, Hearts full of resentment. Lord, many of us come with wounds so deep that we're afraid to show somebody. God, this morning, we need the Prince of Peace. Lord, we ask that you draw near to us as we draw near to you. We ask that you make yourself known to us in real and tangible ways. Again, ways that we can point to. Ways that we know that you are the living God who is here to give us a peace that passes all understanding. Even as we walk through the darkness of the shadow of death, we will not fear it, God, because we know you're with us, and we sense your presence, and we sense that peace that comes with it. pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.